Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth his neighbor hath fulfilled the law. The love of our neighbor worketh no evil. This from today's first reading. Today we'll begin with a little story. A story of a great saint, in fact, two great saints. This, this is a story of St. Timothy and St. Mora. They both lived in the town of Parabas and the early on in the Christian uh, history. St. Timothy was a very holy man. In fact, he was so holy that the bishop named him as a lector. He was married to a Christian lady named Mora. She was only 17 when they got married. Three weeks later, though, he was captured, St. Timothy was, by the local governor. The local governor had realized that if he had captured and forced this man to leave the faith and to worship the false gods of the, of, of the Romans, these people, that these, these, uh, these idols, that he could cause others to fall as well. So the governor, Arianus, uh, called forth Timothy and commanded him to worship the false gods. Of course, he refused, and then he was tortured. He was hung eventually um, from, his, from his feet, and, uh, and, and he was put a, put a great weight upon his neck, causing great pain. Realizing that he was getting nowhere, he called forth his wife, his new wife, and asked her to go and influence Timothy, that he might change, that her tears, that her pleas might induce him to change his mind. So she went, and Timothy spoke to her when the peace was taken out of his mouth, the bridle that was in his mouth, and he said to her, How is it possible, O Mara, that being thyself a Christian, instead of encouraging me to die for the faith, thou dost tempt me to abandon it, and thus to obtain a short and miserable existence here, expose myself to the never-ending pains of hell? Is this then thy love? At these words, Mora was struck to the heart, and she repented. She begged forgiveness not only from God, but also from her husband. Her husband, in seeing this, exhorted her to remain faithful. He told her that her words of contrition have filled her, filled him with great love that he forgot all of his past torments. And then he encouraged her to go and make good and profess herself a Christian before the governor. And she shaking, her, uh, Timothy encouraged her and said, You're with me, my prayers are with you. She, so she went forth and she confessed herself before this cruel judge. And that cruel judge had her tortured as well. He put her into some boiling oil. And when she miraculously came out of it, without the, uh, the, the pain, without any kind of effect, he began to be shaken. And later on, we find uh, a week or so later, he became a Christian because of her testimony. Finally, 
Mora was taken and she was crucified along with Timothy on the same cross, one on one side and the other on the other. And both of them encouraged each other to the very end. A true love story. These two married here on earth and showing forth their love to the very end, most especially their love for God. But it all came about because of an admonition that her husband had given to her. He said, How is it possible, O Mora, that being thyself a Christian, instead of encouraging me to die for the faith, thou dost tempt me to abandon it? She changed her heart because of fraternal correction. And this is what we are to talk about today. That great virtue of charity which is reflected when we perform fraternal correction. Fraternal correction, we see, there is a principle behind it. There is a grave obligation to correct, provided the person who transgresses the law out of inculpable ignorance and provided that there is hope of success. And it's not just sins against the natural law, but also sins against the divine positive law as well. For such action is prohibited by the positive law, already renders an act intrinsically evil. That's the principle. So let's look at some of these points. First of all, inculpable ignorance. Some moral law that a man does not actually know through no fault of his own. You're informing him about this, and you're letting them know. He should know according to his state in life. He should know, and so you're informing this, his intellect on this. And remember, it's not just about the natural law. The natural law are those things which are dictates, written into our hearts. St. Paul says, written into our hearts, and our conscience, that all men know by nature, forbidding certain, certain actions, for example, unnatural actions, lying, murder of innocence, unnatural use of the procreated power. Those are against the natural law. But not only those, but also the positive law, divine positive law. Those dictates that can be arrived through reason, but were further promulgated by Christ and His Church. For example, divorce, loving of one's enemy, not swearing, on light matters. All those things that our Lord says, Amen, Amen, I say to you, dot, dot, dot. Divine positive law. That is the, the subject of the correction. And it is mortal sins. That's what the matter is about. Mortal sins into which our neighbor falls and should be corrected. And notice that it is actually two works of mercy. There's two works of mercy, two works of charity that you are asking and you are promulgating here. Admonishing the sinner and instructing the ignorant. There's two works of mercy. Now, for faults and venial sins, there is another work of mercy on our part, and that is burying wrongs patiently. It's a corporal work of mercy, and we have to do a lot of that. Especially family members have to do a lot of that. It's a work of mercy. There is an obligation then, too. We said that it was grave for those laboring in unculpable ignorance and that there is hope of fruition. 
So, with all this in mind, we have to also remember that the manner has to be fitting for it. It's a virtue, and so in order for it to be a virtue, all things have to be fitting and correct for this to properly be a virtue. The, it is fittingly appropriate, the virtue of charity. So it has to be done charitably. The second thing is we have to consider the person. The person, a child of God, either through nature, made in God's image and likeness, or through grace, having been baptized, and the mark of Christ, the character of Christ in their soul. And we have to consider the end. The end envisioned is the perfect person's conversion. We don't do it because we need to satisfy some feeling in our heart or to be justified. That's not the end of fraternal correction. The fraternal correction is the amending of the life and the change of the heart of the other. St. Francis de Sales says, Zeal is an ardent and flaming love. It requires that it be wisely and prudently practiced. Otherwise, under the cloak of it, one would transgress the limits of moderation or discretion, and it would easy, it'll easily pass from zeal into anger, from a just affection to an unjust passion. And then he says that those servants of God who had the highest and sublimest inspirations were the most mild and peaceable men in the, in the, on the world, in the world. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he points out that those with false zeal, he says, on the contrary, the evil spirits, spirit is turbulent, rough, disturbing. And those who follow infernal suggestions, taking them to be heavenly inspirations, are as a rule easily known, because they are disquieted, headstrong, haughty, ready to undertake or meddle in all affairs, men who under the cloak of zeal turn everything upside down, censure everyone, chide everyone, find fault with everything. They are persons who will not be directed, will not give in to anyone, will bear nothing, but gratify the passions of self-love under the name of jealousy of God's honor. St. Francis de Sales. St. Thomas points out further that it is an act of virtue, and so it must be done, as he says, quote, must be done not in any manner, but observing due circumstances, which require in order that which are required in order for an act to be virtuous, where, when, and how it is to be done. If one fails to observe the circumstances so that it takes away the good of the virtue, it is contrary to the precept. If one fails to observe the circumstances so as not to destroy the virtue altogether, it does not perfectly attain the good of virtue, but it is not against the precept. We are not bound to correct our erring brother in all places and at all times. St. Thomas Aquinas. So what are the reasons that excuse for this? 
Now I made a, a photocopy and I placed it on the table back there so you don't have to try to keep track of this, okay? You can go through it later. But the reasons that excuse for this. First of all, if the sin is not certain, if we're in doubt whether the person has actually done this, you're not bound to correct. Unless, of course, it is something where there is a serious danger to the community and most serious matters, for example, homicide. Second reason that excuses for correcting is if the hope of the success does not become apparent and the correction will create greater damage than good. We know that we deal with a lot of people who think very lowly of Christians and they have no problem blaspheming. Now, if you were to try to correct them, most likely you would receive 10 more blasphemies than just the one that they gave. So, if there is no hope of success and the correction will create a greater damage, provided that, provided that this, the offender is not in danger of death. I know of a priest uh, that tried to change somebody who was dying. And he didn't want to talk to the priest at all. And the priest said, well, can I sit right here and just watch? And I said, okay. So the priest sat there for a little while. And a little while turned into a longer while. And a longer while. And then the man said, what are you doing here, Father? And he says, I've never seen a man go to hell before. And so later on, that changed him. So if the offender is not in danger of death, or if the offender is already in bad faith, if he already is dead set on doing this, he's in bad faith, he's been corrected already. It's not a question of informing the intellect. It's a question of moving the will. In that case, you can pray for him, that his hard his hard heart be softened. Or if there does not exist a danger of perversion of others. For example, if somebody, some man tells impure things in front of little ones that might be easily scandalized. One has an obligation, even one knows that the person won't change, one has an obligation to try to do that. There was a man in Arlington, I see, that, uh, that uh, was outraged by a magazine rack that was placed out there for, uh, for little ones right in front of them. And so he tried to correct them and they would not, but he continued anyway. He would get gas at this place and he says, well, I'm not getting gas here anymore. From now on, I'm going to get gas across the street. And uh, every time he got gas across the street, he would come over to the gas station and say, another $20 you didn't get. And he'd do this every single time he got gas. Well, one day he came in and he looked down and the magazine rack was gone. And he said, hey, what happened to the rack? They said, well, this guy just kept on coming in and started, you know, kept on you know, harassing us. And, and so the owner just got rid of it, you know. So uh, if, we see, if we see that there is no, uh, there does not exist a danger of perversion of others. A third thing, a third reason it excuses from fraternal correction is if there is not lacking others who are equally suited that might correct them. Now, this is something that children can learn, right? If their mom and dad are there, you don't need to do the correction. Mom and dad can do the correction for you. You don't need to do the correction. 
also in questions of modesty. The pastor and the parents, right, are ultimately the ones who bear the burden and they bear the responsibility and have to answer for that. And so you leave it to them to do the correction. If, the fourth uh, reason to the excuses, if it be prudently decided that the sinner might come to his senses on his own. A fifth is the, the occasion uh, might not produce the effect. That at that moment in time it may not produce the effect, so you wait for a more suitable moment. And then another reason it excuses is that it cannot be made without grave inconvenience. If the, you know that the person is not, that you're not quite sure if the person will change, and for example, you might lose that job. So these are the things for fraternal correction. But remember that superiors have something else. Parents, teachers, bishops, priests. We have something else that obliges us, and that's justice. It's not simply a question of fraternal correction. There's also the virtue of justice. And in this case, we're obliged to do so even, uh, even if we see that there is not going to be that fruit. Superiors, for example, need to investigate and inquire by, about crimes or sins when the grounds for it indicate. Prelates or bishops are to convict individuals of grave and venial sins. Grave and venial sins. Preachers must preach against public sins, even if there is no hope of amendment. Sometimes we say things, and we will continue to say them, and cry out warnings of things, even though they may not be pleasant for us to hear. And on my behalf, I apologize for how I might have delivered it. If I didn't use the proper analogy, or if I did not say something, something that might have offended. I apologize for how. Because I'm not perfect. Absolutely not perfect. But I don't apologize for the message. Because I'm obliged to preach on certain things that are not pleasant. The Word of God is over my head and gives me that warning. When we find in Ezekiel 33.6, And if the watchman see the sword coming, and sound not the trumpet, and the people look not to themselves, and the sword come, and cut off a soul from among them. He indeed is taken away in his iniquity, but I will require his blood at the hand of the watchman. I want to get to heaven, okay? I want all of you to get to heaven too, but I want to get to heaven too. So, uh, we can continue to say things that may be not pleasant. Um, remember, too, that we don't have an obligation to, if, if, life, if the danger of life exists, or a danger to our life exists. St. Thomas then goes on to say, Since, however, a virtuous act needs to be moderated by due circumstances, it follows when a subject corrects a, his prelate, he ought to do so in a becoming manner. Now he's talking about when a lower corrects a superior. Not with impudence and harshness. Not with impudence and harshness. But with gentleness and respect. That goes 